Hi guys, welcome back to the Starting to Scale podcast. Uh, very excited, I'm sure you hear that every time I start an episode, but I am very excited again um, to speak with David Arnu um, from Growth Tribe. Um, really excited to have you on the show, David, so thank you very much uh, for sitting down with us today. Excited to be here, can't wait. Good stuff. Now I know we've got a lot to talk about, um, and this, this before we go into all that, let's kind of give the people listening um, a little bit of background about yourself. Um, so I'm going to start you off probably quite a while back, uh, 2006. Um, you graduated uh, from business school uh, after studying in Salford as well, before that, an in international business. Um, and then obviously, you know, we went fast forward 15 years later um, and you've, you found a growth tribe, I think, nearly seven years ago. So just talk to me, mate, about how you started, where you came from, what, what your story is. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I always like to keep the, the intros short a little bit. Uh, sometimes yeah. people do get bored with it, but <laughs> keep to sort of the essentials. Just been obsessed with entrepreneurship since I'm apparently, according to my parents, since I'm 12. <laughs> when I, I said I was gonna, I said I was gonna keep it short. Yeah, and you I started at 12, 12, right? Yeah, yeah, just contradicting <laughs> myself, <laughs> of course. Right? Uh, say something and then do the opposite. But essentially, apparently, I was obsessed with owning a staple factory when I was like uh, 10 or 11 or 12, mm-hmm. according to the, to the parents, because I thought that <laughs> staples could be optimized. They should blend in with the color of the catalogs. So I've, I've kind of had that bug from Crazy. a very early age. Went to business school, a school called ISEC in France, did a dual diploma with the University of Salford. And, uh, and essentially, as soon as I finished school, I went, I, I headed straight to China because uh, I saw opportunities there. Uh, I, I thought it was a really interesting country back in those days and still today for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, El Dorado sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so over there, I, I started a company in import-export uh, with two buddies. Um, that company turned into a bit, of a, a bit of an IT company where we were selling software for, uh, for these factories to be able to communicate with their clients over in the, in the Western world, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, made a bit of money from there and then started actually a brand, a fashion brand, because we identified amazing fashion suppliers over there and something called Picking. Yeah. And there I started in e-commerce and built a pretty strong e-commerce company. We were ranking number one on a bunch of stuff like wow. black slim tie, uh, golden cufflinks, cool. keywords that you might think don't have a lot of value. But actually, when you're number one on thick, thin, slim, uh, on slim necktie for, for men, yeah. Uh, it's quite it's quite a big market and you know very early on had to do a lot of the uh, it, it was entrepreneurship so I had to do everything touch a little bit of code touch a little bit of analytics touch a little bit of uh, user experience design touch a little bit of marketing touch on a little bit of a uh, sort of everything um, that, that company was quite successful built up the e-commerce side we also started investing in brick and mortar shops uh, in, in some key strategic cities in, uh, in France, notably Paris and some of the other bigger cities. Yeah. Um, and then I met my wife who told me, sell your company, come to the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you did it, naturally. Yeah, so I did Straight it <laughs> with, with kind of a strong entrepreneurial baggage, uh, I would say, uh, quite strong, especially on the business to consumer side. Yeah. Because um, I taught myself all, all of these uh, things. And came over to the Netherlands um, and then worked on a SaaS productivity tool, which is, it was kind of like Slack, but without the, the same amount of funding. Uh, uh, but the same idea, uh, task management, productivity, a similar tool to Slack for, um, 
language-based uh, communication or the cool little thing that we, you could check the, the you can check the, um, the the pitch that we have online. Just type yeah, best yeah. startup pitch, and I think it's it's somewhere in like the top two three results. It was called To Do. Um, that didn't make as much money as we didn't have as much traction as we'd hoped for. And we, we kind of struggled to raise for the next round. Um, and then I started growth tribe, uh, actually it's six years ago now, uh, along with, uh, with my co-founders. Yeah. And so actually now we're six years old at, at growth tribe. Uh, we've trained over, it's an educational company. We're an ed tech. And what we do is we make sure people and companies have the most in-demand digital skills outside of coding, all the other digital yeah. skills. So data, user experience design, growth marketing, digital marketing, uh, also leadership skills. Uh, we've trained 16,000 people uh, oh. to date across 900 companies. We operate glo globally out of our European offices. And uh, I personally, at the moment, I run a bit of uh, the top line, let's say, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. sort of the uh, sort of the, the growth. And you know, we could talk about what you know stories from the trenches if you want. I think I've been involved with like. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's like maybe 400, 500 plus teams uh, at this oh. point, whether it's in the company or uh, I don't even know if that's number correct. A, lar a large amount of teams in the B2C, yeah, yeah. in the B2B sphere. And I see a lot of patterns. I like to do pattern matching. Yeah. And I've built a bunch of mental models based on what we've seen. And maybe we can discuss uh, discuss some of those things. Definitely. I mean, I'm interested because... It, it, it's really weird because the start of the conversation there, you, you talked about kind of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship, sorry, and doing absolutely everything um, and being involved in everything. And then it's kind of come around like 360 from that. And you've, you're now kind of helping everyone else do everything and, and provide them courses and, and training for people to actually be able to do things. Not like you said, not just the coding side of it. Um, yep. Do you reckon that's because of your kind of past, because of your challenges, you kind of you founded Growth Tribe based on what your experiences were? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, what we've seen is, is that um, digital is not that complicated. It's actually not that complicated, but there's, there's a book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock that was written in 1970 in the 1970s and it's still to, it's even more true today than it was back in those days and the idea the concept of future shock is that change is so rapid that as humans we have difficulty in adapting to that change and that creates anxiety and uh, it creates stress and we really started this company to relieve what we like to call techno stress or techno anxiety from people because things are actually not that complicated terms like data analytics user experience design landing page optimization, predictive analytics, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, blockchain, decentralized applications. Yeah, I'm sweating already listening to them words. <laughs> it's scary. It sounds scary. And sometimes some firms like to make things sound more difficult than they actually are. Yeah. What we like to do is we like to take people by the hand and be like, it's going to be okay. All of these terms are not that complicated. Yeah. And this is the first sort of obstacle that you need to pass. Uh, the first hurdle, we talk about going from a zero to a two, for example, just to pass yeah. that first hurdle so that you can understand intuitively what all of these things, things mean. And not only what you should be learning next, but also how deep, um, how deep you should go. So that's kind of the first reason why we started this company is because these things are not so complex. Yes, the world is moving fast, changing fast. But if you have a basic understanding of what these terms and concepts mean, if you have a basic understanding of where you want to be as an individual, 
then we can probably help you understand what to learn next and how deep to go. The second reason we started the company is we sort of saw consulting firms and consultants making things look too complicated to their clients. Yeah. And you cannot outsource growth. You cannot outsource tone of voice. We believe, and I strongly believe that the riskiest assumption of any venture nowadays, whether it's um, an already scaled venture that has years of experience or whether it's a new startup or scale up a project is distribution. It's distribution. It's not product. It's actually distribution. And if you look at um, what companies tend to focus on, it's a lot of product, product, product. But the attention economy has never been more expensive. It's never been harder to get attention of, uh, of individuals because we're all fighting for people's uh, attention. The cost to acquire customers has never been so high. Digital ad spend, ad spend has never been so high. The number of new products, products released on a weekly basis has never been so high. Just go to a website called Product Hunt. You'll see about 100, 200 new products released on a daily basis. And we're all fighting, struggling for the same people's attention, yeah. uh, let's say. So we believe that the riskiest assumption from, um, from a business point of view is um, distribution. Yeah. If you look at a company like HubSpot, for example, they didn't have a better product early days, a better CRM. They just had better distribution. Yeah. If you look at a tool like Drift, which is like a chatbot, conversational interface, they didn't have a better conversational interface than the others. They just had better uh, marketing tactics, distribution yeah. tactics. Also, if you look at Slack, for example, there was HipChat already when Slack came around, but Slack had much better product-led uh, growth cooked yeah. into the product. And so we believe that growth and data-informed decision-making needs to be embedded within the DNA of your organization. Yeah, completely. And that's where sort of training capability building comes into play. Um, because what we see overall in 95% of organizations and individuals nowadays is that growth, customer centricity, digital savviness, basic digital capabilities, but also data capabilities, they're just not there. They're just not there at the moment. And we really believe just by spending a little bit of time on what we call it deliberate learning, a little bit of time on learning those key concepts, um, then you've got a ripple effect to the rest of the organization where your decision-making becomes maybe 1% or 2% better on a daily basis. And similar to compound interest rates, that actually compounds over time. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. So, and you can, like, you can really hear your passion um, when you're talking about <laughs> it. Like, it. It comes across yeah. so well. And, and I think that part, part of us, because you believe in what you do and it works, you, you, that's why you founded a company which is so successful now. But also because... You sold golden cufflinks to everyone um, around the world. <laughs> that. So it, it just shows that if you have the right distribution, using your terms there, that you can really grow and and hit a, a huge target audience. At the end of the day, you know you can. The way the world works now, the internet has enabled us to to reach people at the other side of the globe um, and sell to them and and grow with them. So. Having that distribution, as you say, you know, it is so important now. But if I'm an entrepreneur, um, unfortunately, I'm not because it probably would have failed by now anyway. But if I was an entrepreneur, <laughs> I would. I mean, I don't have a clue about these things. And, and like you say, you kind of simplify that process. But where would I even start if I've got a product or an idea about a product? I've not even got the product yet. Where would you say start? Would you say learn these, learn these phrases and? and words and have the understanding or first 
work out how to start your find your product and then go down that route. Do you, do you have any kind of insight on that? Starting from scratch, it all starts from the product. It, it always does start from the product. And basically every single product on the planet here is here to solve a pain. Uh, water is a product, it solves thirst. Um, Sunny Delight, Coca-Cola does the same thing. It solves <laughs> thirst. So yeah. it's a solution for, a, it's always a solution for a, a pain. Netflix solves boredom. Uh, Netflix number one competitor is probably uh, sleep, as they famously uh, as they famously. <laughs> but you really start with a pain that you that you, that, that you want to solve. Now, what we tend to see is that there's this whole notion of painkillers versus vitamins. Yeah, not always true. But the bigger the pain, the easier your life will be. Um, so the bigger the pain that you're solving, or the bigger the market for which you're solving that pain, or the stronger the pain for that market is the more the customer is going to want to solve uh, that pain uh, uh, right away. Yeah. Um, so it always does start a little bit with the product. What's the pain that you're solving and what solution are you bringing to solve that pain? Is it a 1x better than what's currently on the market, a 5x or 10x better? Um, the, the bigger the number of Xs, the easier probably it will be to solve that, uh, uh, to sell your, your actual product. Yeah. Now, what we talk about is we talk about uh, first of all, if you're starting from scratch, typically we have something called the customer adoption curve. In the customer adoption curve, you have the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, the late majority, and the laggards. Now your innovators are people who, they, they test everything. So they'll probably buy your product just to test it. It's those people that have all of the new, all of the new products, the new backpack, the new phone, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They just test even though they don't have the pain, they like to test new stuff. What you're looking for early on is your early adopters, that, that first thousand true fans. The early adopters, they have the pain. They know they have the pain. That's important. You don't need to educate them on the fact that they have the pain. They know that they have the pain. They feel it. They've already tried to solve it, but they're not happy with the existing solution. And probably they're willing to pay in money or in time to solve that uh, actual pain. The higher the pain, the bigger that market, the easier your life um, your life will be. That's usually step one. And okay. that's where great entrepreneurs come into play, that they have a great solution. Now, there's two approaches to solution building. One is you're a visionary and you come up with a solution that nobody else has thought of. And I usually say good luck with that because there's a few, very few visionaries out there that have ever existed. It's like Coco Chanel. Maybe a Steve Jobs, although some would argue that there was a lot of copying there. Probably a Nikola Tesla. Um, and then you've got the other type that's more like fast followers or copiers, right? Where the solution already exists. It's already been validated on the market for you. Somebody's already sort of doing it, but they haven't scaled it yet. And you're going to be that scaler. And you're going to do that solution a little bit better than the rest. And I would actually argue towards going a little bit more for that solution. A little bit, not of copying, but being inspired by what already exists out there, bundling it, bundling it correctly, and then trying to distribute uh, as fast as possible. Um, there's a beautiful mental model. It's called the BJ Fog model. They call it BMAT. There's only two reasons why people are not buying your product. Two reasons. Why they're not clicking on triggers, right? It's either a lack of motivation. Okay. So you imagine on one axis, on the y-axis, it's yeah. the lack of motivation. And on the x-axis, it's a lack of usability. They can't access your product. They don't know about it. 
uh, and so on and so forth. Like they, they haven't heard about it or it's hard to access it. It's, it's hard to test it. It's hard to use it. It's hard to buy it. It's yeah. expensive to buy it. Everything can be summarized by that model. When you look at the, uh, uh, the y-axis, so the, uh, the motivation, how big is the pain? If the pain's really big, then the motivation is really high. We worked with a company in the fast. They would give access to people who were sick to products that uh, were uh, to drugs that were still in uh, in, in trials, right? Okay. They had to so the the motivation was really high. The usability they had to read through forty five pages of uh, legal forms to have access to that product. Okay. So the the usability was really really stinky and bad. Doesn't matter. They still did it because the motivation was really really high. Yeah, yeah, On yeah. the other hand, somebody that's trying to launch a new social network nowadays, it's like, oh god, the motivation is probably pretty low. So your usability needs to be amazing, and it's really a balancing act of that motivation and of that uh, usability, that accessibility. Now, most products, the motivation is, let's say, pretty high. You want to get to that threshold of the pretty high. I don't know what it is exactly, but typically you want to be in a person's top three tier pains, the thing that they think about on a daily basis, whether that's in B2C or B2B. And that's your early adopters, the people for whom you're in the top three, top three tier of pains that they have on a daily basis. So if you're, if you're targeting salespeople, maybe it's like a CRM tool, or maybe it's not because their CRM tools are, uh, are great. If you're, um, if you're targeting somebody who's, really strong about ecology it's probably about i don't know about recycling or something like this and that's really your early adopters now what we talk about in the customer adoption curve is the early adopters you're usually quite good at finding them and getting them to pay for it then you want to cross the chasm and reach the early majority and typically early majority you're not a top tier pain anymore you're a secondary pain and that's where you start to educate the market about hey there's this pain that you maybe didn't know you had you probably need to fix it and uh, for example, TransferWise is a great example of this. Back in those days, they spent so much time and money and effort on PR campaigns around educating the market that international transfer costs were too high. Yeah. But that's expensive, right? They really educated the market with PR and with content marketing. Uh, and they actually created an even bigger market for themselves on educating the market that transfer costs were too high. They created a pain that people didn't know they had. Uh, there's another famous example of this. It's Listerine uh, back in the days. You know Listerine nowadays? Yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they, they engineered this sickness called halitosis. Didn't exist before. Halitosis means bad breath uh, it, it's from its Latin root. They actually educated the market on this pseudo medical term of halitosis and created <laughs> a, market, uh, a market for themselves. Wow. Um, so it's a little bit all over the place, but step one to, to recap, step one is find a pain that's worth solving, find a solution for that pain, whether that's a solution that already exists, but you think you can improve it or be a visionary yeah. and a solution that nobody has thought of. Identify a core group of users or customers that have the pain, know they have the pain, want to solve that pain and already prove that you can, you can sell to that core group of uh, early adopters. And there you'll already have uh, you'll already be posing yourself that question is where do I find them? How do I find them? Yeah. What messaging to use? How do I distribute to them? And then I would suggest run 10 experiments in 10, 10 weeks. Can I get 10, 20, 30 people just to sign up for my thing, let alone having built it. Can I just get 10, 20, 30 people to agree to sign up to it? Just that that's probably like your riskiest that's assumption. The, that's, the basic, to that's the start point. And then from yeah. that you scale, and you educate, as you said, 
Um, yeah. Maybe don't create an illness, but you know, we just educate people on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the pain points. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, keep, keep scaling that solution. So, I mean, that, that, by the way, was extremely insightful. And I'm sure there's people out there who, who completely kind of relate to that, to their, to what they're doing and think, wow, I never thought of it like that. Now I understand. Let me go out and, and find some people. Um, but then you get past that point and you mentioned it yourself, you know, um, you struggle to raise some money in one of the businesses you started um, and kind of get that investment. Have you got any insight on that side of things? Where, where you'd go next? You, you've kind of got the product, you've tested your core, you, you know you've got um, a solution to people's pains. But how do you go about then going, right, I, I want investment? And this is a conversation I've had with a few different people. And I think Kay as himself um, said, you know, this, this insight where you, you want the right investor, you don't want someone maybe to, to take control or you don't want to, to, you want kind of someone who just supports these different ways of doing it or you do it yourself. What kind of patterns do you see in the market when you speak with people? Yeah, so there's two types of businesses, right? There's ones that can uh, be, become self-sufficient yeah. that don't need upfront initial large amounts of investment. Yeah. I'm thinking consulting firm, usually service companies, service-led organizations. Yeah. For that type of company, you probably don't even need investors. Um, you should probably be able to grow from your own cash flow, from your own, um, from the, from the, uh, uh, you, you don't need an injection of work, uh, working yeah, yeah. capital, for example. Yeah. Uh, consulting firm, an agency, legal firm, uh, a restaurant, a dentist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or at least to get started, right? Yeah, um, yeah, so you can scale from that, from the profit, from the turnover, et cetera, you can grow. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you want to grow faster, there's there's four things investors look at, team, traction, thesis, and timing. That's it, right? Okay. Like every idea on the planet's a good idea. It's just they're not all a good idea at the same time. So you have timing. Okay. You can see some, uh, look at the tech bubble from uh, the year 2000. All of the stuff that's like exploding at the moment, the Ubers, the helplings, the deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. Those are pet.com. You know, pets.com is a beautiful company nowadays, not with that domain, but so all ideas are great, <laughs> but it's a question of timing. Yeah. Then you have the thesis, right? Is it a painkiller solution? Is there a fierce value proposition? Big market, big vision, thesis. Then you've got your traction. Strong customer validation, data-driven decision-making, uh, solid go-to-market strategies, positive unit economics, blah, blah, blah. And then you have the team. Complementary skill sets, founder market fit, eye-to-eye conversations, uh, strong values, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, the most important in all those four, it's the traction, okay. I mean, period. It's the traction. So I was saying you have two why, types why of- is uh, two... Why, is that, why is that? Why do you think that's the most important then? Because it's proof. Okay. Traction is proof. Perfect. I mean, yeah. yeah. If you have a strong track record, Stuart Butterfield from uh, uh, from Slack, uh, Gagan Biani, guy from Udemy, who's now launching Maven, stuff like that. If you've proven that you've been able to do it once or twice before, then you can raise with nothing. You don't need the traction yet. They'll just take your money. The, <laughs> yeah, the venture yeah. capitalists, they'll take your money. There's a lot of money. They, they can trust you. 99% of us, we don't have that. We don't have that track record. No, very true. So how do you prove that your idea is a good idea? Well, you traction. So first you prove problem solution fits. You prove that your solution is the best solution for the pain where it's being solved. Okay. How do you do that? Paying customers, returning customers, number of clicks, 
uh, number of people who have signed up to your beta. Usually what investors look for nowadays, it's they look at uh, retention, returning customers, yeah. returning revenue, and they look at your customer acquisition cost and your customer lifetime value. It's, it's a basic, uh, it's a business case, right? What's yeah. your cost to acquire customers and how much do you, can you extract from customers under a year, for example? So when you go back to the two types of businesses, there's a service type of business, uh, and then there's more of a tech type of business. Now, usually tech businesses, they require a lot of upfront investments in development, in developers, product investment, et cetera, et cetera. The great part about tech companies is they have a higher multiplier of value. So you put a seven, an eight, a 10 X on your revenue numbers, for example, you can really go far into the valuation. Service-led companies in Europe at the moment, it's more like a three, four X on your revenue and certain uh, targets on your EBITDA. But the faster you can get traction, the higher your valuation, the less equity you need to give away. If you're looking for a, uh, if you're looking for investors. In that point, the more stronger valuation. Yeah, stronger valuation. Because investors, what they will do is they will put a discount on your forecast. The more you can prove that your forecast is based on hard, cold data, hard, cold, uh, stone cold facts, the less of a discount that they will put. But I would argue that most companies for the first year, actually, they don't even need investment. Uh, I'm working with, uh, we work with a lot of companies where they get their initial traction uh, from their own funds. Um, and the pain that they're solving is so high that people, even beta users are willing to pay just to be first in line to start using the product. That's amazing. And we call that a dry wallet test. Okay, prove to me problem solution fit. Prove it to me by getting people to pay for your product or service, even though you haven't built it yet. You give them a 50% discount uh, and they'll be the first to be allowed to use it. Then you've really proven that they have a pain that they want to solve. Yeah. Most of the time that doesn't work, but there you've got a real painkiller. This usually yeah. works in B2B, uh, for example. Uh, last thing is one of the reasons why a lot of great companies come out of consulting firms or agencies is because what agencies do is they do customer discovery on a daily basis. They're solving the pains of their customers. Yeah. And at some point they're like, oh, we've solved this pain for three, four, five customers. Let's productize it. We've already proven that people will want to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. And we do it as a service, but then let's actually productize it and sell it to a larger number of uh, companies. So what I would say to young budding entrepreneurs would actually, who don't have that track record, who don't have the traction, who don't want to be eating ramen for the first year, I would set up as a consulting firm or an agency. And I would manually, we call that a Wizard of Oz testing. You know, remember the Wizard of Oz? He's actually yeah, in the yeah. back pulling all the levers, but actually, yeah, I would actually do it as a service to begin with. And then once you've proven that case one, two, three, four times, then you've kind of got a traction for, huh, maybe we can actually productize this. Let's get investment or let's pay with the money we got from delivering that service to actually build this up. That is so insightful. I mean, I've spoken to quite a few people and founders and, you know, it's such a different approach, but yeah, when you've said it, it makes perfect sense and it kind of just clicks in your head and go, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense because you, you're testing things while you, you go in, you don't need the investment side of it. You can produce profits and turnover. It makes perfect sense. Obviously, that comes with other challenges, yeah? You know, when you're starting a business, it yeah. is various other challenges. Do you think, and with yourself, for example, you founded companies with people. Um, do you think that's a, a really big positive and, and helpful for, for you, for other people, for entrepreneurs to, to actually have someone to lean on alongside you and, and go into battle with? It really depends on your personality traits and it depends on, uh, 
it really depends on the individual. I would say for me, a hundred percent, you know, finding someone who's complementary skill set. typically you want a bit of tech, a bit of sales, or you want a bit of product, a bit of sales, right? You want your super connector, great at sales. And then you want the person who is more on product and maybe a bit more conscientious, let's say that's usually tech and sales or product and sales that that, that's the perfect. There's also something called founder market fit. Okay. Some some founders are a perfect fit for certain markets. Others are not. They have no track record. They don't know what they're doing in that field. Now that can actually be an advantage. Sometimes you don't want to know what you're doing in a certain field because you want to start from scratch, not with all this legacy code in your brain of 15 yeah, years yeah. of doing it like everybody else. Um, and then having strong values and personal chemistry. For me, it's always been extremely important. I've always been on the product and marketing side, and I've always uh, partnered up with people who are much more on sort of the sales, super connector yeah. side, much more outgoing, extroverted. Uh, but you also see beautiful stories of people who are extremely visionary, extremely stubborn, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, move forward. I would say gut feeling it's 80-20. So 80% strong complementary uh, skills, et cetera, and 20% they can go at it alone. But yeah, of course you want that strong team. Everybody says that you need a strong team, you need a strong team. I would give just one tip, like date before you get married. And you know, it's same thing to love. You want to date for like a certain amount of time before you actually get to <laughs> uh, get analogy. married. Don't sign anything for the first year and then sign a prenup with your shareholder. <laughs> I like Definitely. it. That's, that's good advice. We'll maybe uh, plaster that one at the top of the 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 summary um make sure yeah. you <laughs> place um but you, you mentioned obviously the market there and how it can be a, a founder fit for the market right but does geographical location as well does that matter now as much we mentioned you know you were in china paris you have e-commerce experience sell from the, you can sell to the other side of the world but does the the location necessarily matter with hq because you're in, we're in amsterdam right amsterdam's unbelievable for startups but does it actually matter? How, how much of a, a part does that play? Well, you can adapt to the context. It plays a lot. Ecosystems are extremely important. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you go full remote, the world is your ecosystem. Uh, yes, I would say the location you're in does matter. Uh, okay. But that's just personal experience. Um, Why do you think that is? That what, what part does it play, in your opinion? Well, because ecosystem gives you four things. One, it gives you clients. Second, it gives you funding. Third, it gives you a talent to hire from. And fourth, it gives you peers. You need to have access to talent yeah. for hiring later on. Uh, you need to have access to capital. Some areas are more prone to have a, a active capital. I mean, Amsterdam is good, but it's not the best place in the world for capital. Right? Europe, we tend to be really, uh, we tend to be really risk averse. So you yeah. need to show a lot of traction now. And now more and more better unit economics before you'll be able to raise. Yeah. Um, but it is good. I mean, in terms, if you look globally, it, it's a great place, great ecosystem. Yeah. So is Paris, so is London, very much so. Um, and then, of course, you go to the States where it's like Wild West money, it's cowboy money. So it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's easier to raise, yeah. uh, uh, especially for like seed funding and Series A, although there's a little bit of a crunch at the moment. Uh, that, by the way, puts there's so much capital so much venture capital at the moment that it puts so much pressure on growth and on distribution because all of these startups have so much capital to play with that they spend, they spend, they spend, and your customer acquisition cost goes up. Um, Do you third thing. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say like capitalists, venture capitalists, investors at the moment, you know, from, from the conversation I've had, it's kind of like the invest in maybe 10 things and they only expect one or two to actually succeed. Do you reckon that's getting. But that's a VC portfolio. That's completely normal. So you place 10 bets. Uh, if you look at average distribution of a VC's portfolio, you get 0.4% of the portfolio that gives back a 50x on your investment. And that pays, 
it's a numbers game and, yeah. and that that makes up for all of your failed uh, other experiments yeah and then you have like 1.3 or 1.4 percent that gives you i think it was a 10 to 20x okay. uh, and then there's a small percentage again that's a 5x and then the rest it's like didn't even break even or something especially yeah. for early stage investments it's a numbers game it's really yeah, yeah. a numbers game. Do you reckon that's part then, of that cause this crunch you, you mentioned then though, like in terms of like there's so much pressure now because so, so there's been there was a sort of a, a pretty wild phase on valuations and now investors more and more are looking on on unit economics. Yeah. Uh, after after the Ubers, the WeWorks, the SoftBanks of this world, although SoftBank's doing great now, but they, I'm not saying they're doing it completely, but there is, we are looking more at unit economics, a yeah. little bit more CAC, CLTV, uh, just EBITDA, maybe not EBITDA, but a little bit more. But Yeah, okay. Um, and sorry, yeah, we were talking about obviously the, the ecosystem and how that plays a part. And yeah. one, one question I did have, the, the way the world's going at the moment, um, especially after, you know, the, the unfortunate events with, with COVID and yeah. all that panned out for, for many of the, much of the planet, you know, in, in terms of, the remote working side, everyone seems to be doing it, whether that, but I think it, from my point of view, working in recruitment, I, I always believe it's important to have a base, to have a, a, a place where you can create that culture and that value and, 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 you know, build that into the company and the people working in the company as well. But do you think there's a place entirety for completely remote, worldwide remote and having no fixed head office for, for companies now? Yeah, I mean, if uh, if 37 Signals and Jason Fried can do it, if uh, Matt Mullenweg from WordPress can do it, yeah, um, yes, definitely. You you start to see a lot of uh, remote first and remote only uh, organizations. Yeah, I do think it lends itself. Also, a lot of consulting firms work in that way. Huh? When you think about it, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're you're at the client a lot. Uh, I do think I it lends itself really well to tech firms. Uh, and then other types of firms, maybe less. It really depends on the culture that you're trying to build. Um, can a startup one, do it? Can, can, can an entrepreneur now with one person go, I want to do it fully remote from day one? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think yeah. my point of view on this is that remote works really, really well for more senior yeah. uh, individuals. Uh, it works a little bit less maybe for uh, more juniors. Uh, who have a shitty apartment. Yeah, the guys. Yeah, your house is, your apartment sucks. It's tiny. You don't like spend your day in it. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. need that social engagement with others. You need that mentorship. You need that coaching. And you like those hallway conversations. Uh, having said that, maybe that's old world. Matt Mullingweg has a beautiful um, a mental model on working remote where there's level one, two, three, four, five. And in level five, you're able to bring back all of that um, all of that remote only, uh, all of the things from the real world you're allowed to bring online. Yeah. I don't know. I really think it depends. I think basically it's like everything. The pendulum was here all the way on the right. It swung all the way on the left and it's going to swing back a little bit into the middle. We I learned agree. that we don't always need to be in the office. And of course, the hybrid approach will, will be the approach that everybody takes, but the hybrid approach is different for everyone. Yeah. Am I still forced to come into the office one or two days a week? Am I not forced? Do I do what I want? How do we get together? Do I pay people pay people the same salary uh, depending uh, where, where wherever they work, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. I would argue that... Yeah. Uh, it, it really depends on you, your personality traits and the type. Anything's possible. Honestly, yeah. you can do remote first, 100%. Remote only also, yeah, absolutely 100%. Yeah. 
Um, but then you look, need to look at the operating systems of how companies do that uh, well. Yeah. So look Dropbox, look into 37 Signals, look into Automatic, the company that owns WordPress. They're like best in class at, uh, at doing it. I mean, it's it's a whole podcast. We could have a whole different podcast on on the the, the remote working and, and the benefit, yeah. the pros, the cons, and and obviously what it takes. But it was just something I was just keen to get your insight on um, for, for those guys who maybe are starting out and, and just aren't sure on, on whether a, an office is the way to go. Um, but yeah, I mean... Probably. Sorry. Together, to be honest, you want to be in the same room, like sweating together and all of that stuff. I mean, I'd at agree. least, at yeah. least the co-founders. Yeah, I think it's important um, to at least like get that culture, get that that bond between people, and you can't sometimes get that over a video call or a phone call. Uh, no. So getting in the office <laughs> does help. Um, in terms of then, you, you talked about patterns earlier and, and what you're seeing in the market. Um, just just touching on that, what kind of um, patterns are you seeing at the moment for, for kind of early stage startups, you know, um, and what are you kind of advising people as they go now and what's what's important other than traction, obviously, which sounds like. Yeah, so we so we, we train mostly corporates. Uh, right. oh, mostly. So I work mostly with corporates now, uh, like 75 percent of my time, 25 percent of my time is, is with startups and the. Uh, yeah scale-ups it's the same stuff we saw 10 years ago it's yeah. the same stuff find a pain worth solving create the, the right solution don't always reinvent the wheel focus 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 your competitive our scarcest resource is time yeah. our competitive advantage is focus focus on a big pain worth solving with a big market and do it well do it better than anybody else it's the beachhead approach so you want to imagine like also a, a shovel super super sharp sharp focus and you plow it down as deep as possible and then you pull it up company uh, sorry um startups and early stage founders they tend to lack focus and feature creep happens where they want to build a bunch of features what is the number one thing that you are solving and what is the number one feature that your customers come back and want to try to use so there's a great test it's called the product market fit test that was developed by uh, uh, sean ellis the number one thing that matters for a uh, early stage founder is product market fit, the right product for the right market. Then we can talk about go to market strategy and distribution and all that stuff. What is product market fit? You have the uh, Mark Andreessen definition. That's basically, it's like love. When you have product market fit, you know. Uh, uh, clients are phoning so, so much that you need to get a second phone. People are just pushing the door down to try to get your product. Absolutely amazing. Then you have one that's a little bit more data-driven. It's called the Sean Ellis test. So what you basically do is people who have, are using your custom, your product, you send them a questionnaire and you need to get a, with a question, how, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use my product or if you hadn't been able to buy my product? Somewhat disappointed, very disappointed, um, not disappointed, or I don't know, I don't use it anymore, or I never actually used it in the first place. The benchmark is you need to get 40% of disappointed or more. 40% really? of very disappointed, very disappointed. Why is That's that? Uh, so he basically tested it on 10 companies and he saw that the ones that did really well and that exploded and had product market fit when he used that survey was about 40%. Now, all is not lost if you don't have that 40%. Even if you have 5% of very disappointed, so you need segment your customers and look look at uh, what is special about that 5%. What do they have in common? 
Are they from similar industries, similar personality traits, similar geographic locations? What pain are we solving for these people? There's a beautiful, beautiful article called How Superhuman Achieved Product Market Fit. They take you through the steps one by one. How Superhuman Achieved Product Market Fit. They take you through all of those steps. If you don't have that 40%, right? If you don't have that 40%, fight towards that 40%. Just keep on working towards that. I want a core group of customers, the 100 true fans, as Kevin Kelly puts it, the 100 true fans in the early days who want my product, need my product, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you need to focus on the features that those 100 true friends want and need. Yeah. Because there's probably, it's the greatest law in the universe is the power law, the Pareto law, right? The power law, the 80-20 rule. What is the 20% of things that we'll be doing that are going to give us the 80% of results? Mm -hmm. Now, what few people know is the power law is a fractal law, which means that you can zoom in on the 2080. There's a 2080 inside the 2080. <laughs> actually a 4% that's going to give you 54% of your results. And then there's a 1% that's going to give you the 50% of results. What are we doing on a weekly basis? You should be trying to identify what is that 1%. And that basically means focusing on what's that 1% of features or marketing channels or efforts that we're doing on a weekly basis that's going to give us 50% of the results. Nothing else matters. Because early stage startups, your number one resource is uh, time. Your yeah. scarcest resource is time. And your competitive advantage, I promise, it's focus. You should probably spend two hours a week just planning. Are these activities that we have in our sprint planning, are they going to give us that 50%? Are they actually going to give us that 50%? And last point is in a lot of our courses on growth, we talk about the OMTM, the one metric that matters. So typically as a company, you have a North Star metric. What's the most important metric for our business? For some business, it's recurring revenue. For others, it's retained customers. For others, it's just hard cold cash. That's your North Star metric for your whole year. But every week you have a different, every sprint you have a different OMTM, one metric that matters. There's only one metric that matters to you every week. Yeah. Your customer journey is linking somewhere. Focus on one metric at a time. Is it driving more people into our experiments? Is it getting more money from the customers we have? Is it validating these key assumptions around problem solution fit? And you focus on one every week and that's your focus that's the OMTM for that any given week. And until you fixed it, you're fucked anyway. So you can't, uh, you, you shouldn't be focusing on the rest. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Really cool. So uh, just, I mean, we talked about traction being very, very important for, for people, you know. But from, from what I'm getting and, and when I'm speaking to you, it, it's also so important to have data analytics and to understand the data you're actually being shown. Um, so you can have traction, but if you don't understand it and you can't kind of understand how to, to capitalize on it as such and, and grow from that, and then you can't go any further. So data, what, what, how do people start to understand that? And that's where people like yourself come in, right? And, and what you do at Growth Tribe. So they, what is data and how, how can we understand it better? Just really quickly on that. No, no, absolutely. So there's two types of, let's say, data realms. One with regards to our conversation, one really has to do with startup metrics. Yeah. Understanding basic startup metrics customer acquisition cost, customer lifetime value, 
monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, and then your basic financial date, basic financial metrics. So many people don't have a, a solid grasp of finance yet. It's yeah. it's so important when you're building a business. <laughs> just but just a bit. <laughs> yeah, just your, your top line. So your revenue, your cost yeah. of goods sold, your EBITDA, your managerial EBITDA, those basic concepts, they're going to inform every decision that you take. And so that's also what we do in our growth programs or our data programs. Uh, we, we really go through those basic metrics. And then you have the other world of data that's more around big data and machine learning and prescriptive analytics and predictive analytics. And that's mostly things when you have a business that's up and running. Um, and those are also extremely uh, powerful. So I would say one of them is startup metrics. Just understand basic startup metrics. Customer acquisition cost, loaded, non-loaded. Uh, customer lifetime value. Time to recuperate customer acquisition cost. How long does it take to recuperate the amount of money I've invested in acquiring customers? Um, and uh, maybe some basic finance. Yeah. What's yeah. revenue? What, what are COGS? What are cost of goods sold? What's a gross margin? Uh, what, what is uh, EBITDA? You could probably run a whole company just on being able to track those in your, in your early days. And then we go, then we go into deeper. Um, uh, there's other metrics we could talk about, but those are like the basics. Yeah. What we usually do at, at Growth Tribe is we teach people basic data analytics for businesses that are a little bit more up and running. Uh, so the difference between supervised and unsupervised machine learning, for example, yeah. it's really yeah. interesting. Nowadays, we can use basic algorithms, one to do unsupervised learning, which is basically you throw a bunch of data at an algorithm and that uh, algorithm comes back with findings that you didn't know existed just basic findings about your customers, about anything. So that's when you don't know what you're looking for. And then you have supervised learning and that's where you know what you're looking for. So you know that you're looking for a customer lifetime value or you're looking to optimize a conversion rate. And then you throw the data into an algorithm and the algorithm is gonna tell you um, how you're performing on that specific KPI. And then you can start to play around with something called predictive analytics where based on input, you can predict actually how you're, gonna, how you're gonna do. So we're talking about two sort of different levels of data. One that's quite basic, so it's having KPIs essentially. And the other one is a little bit more advanced. It's using data to inform your decisions, maybe predict outcomes that are going to uh, happen. Um, all of them have to do with data-informed uh, data decision-making, which I believe is, I would say, is the number one uh, variable that's correlated with business success nowadays. Data-informed decision-making. Yeah. Um, and not just quality of, uh, quality of decisions, but quantity of decisions. Like throwing as much spaghetti at the wall as possible and then seeing what actually works. Um, but that's maybe that's a whole other discussion around data that would take yeah, a bit. that's so cool though. I mean, I, yeah, it, it's, this is... This is the kind of insight I think people who who are stood there and don't really know that they're, they're getting some traction, maybe they're doing some much different, they don't understand it. Um, and that's the difference, I guess, between being successful and growing and just kind of like getting to a point where you, you plateau and you're not sure yeah. how you got there really and, and where you go next. So you can get lucky, huh? you can also just do the right thing. As long, I mean, and there's one thing is sales solves almost everything. If the sales are there, you're golden. You can figure out all of the metrics. Yeah, forget about the rest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, if I'm if I'm kind of a, a a company now and and you know I want to kind of speak to Growth Tribe maybe, um, but I don't really know what I want or what I need. 
Um, are you guys there? Can we, can people get in touch with you? Like, is, what's the best way to do that? Oh, yeah, hundred percent. So if you're an organization, you just come to our website. We have a whole part, www.growthtribe.io, www.3w's.growthtribe.io. And you check at the top of the site, it says four companies. And then you just click and we can start a call. What we do there is we say, what are your, what is, what's your company strategy at the moment? then we find a way to fix that with capability building and usually we'll increase almost all of the KPIs that are important. That's what we have in our use cases. All of the KPIs that are important to you, we're like a consulting firm, except we train your people and you don't need a consulting firm. Uh, basically your people get better and you've embedded that those capabilities in the DNA of your, of your company. And then if you're an individual thinking about reskilling themselves, upskilling themselves, or if you're a head of a startup, for example, or founder, uh, then you go to our public courses. So that's like our 12 week growth course where we take you through, through 12 weeks of exactly what we've discussed here. Uh, or if you're a little bit more in a data career, you come to our data analytics courses. In either case, you come to www.growthtribe.io and you'll see what's a, uh, what's a fit for you. Yeah, cool, cool. So guys, we'll make sure we have um, some links and, and everything we talked about, whether it be the books or whatnot. Next question, I expect um, you'll probably know this based on all the data you work with. What, what's the future for Growth Tribe look like? Um, what's, what's the plan? <laughs> Great question. Well, we just we're, we're scaling uh, at the moment. So our ambition is to have, you know, impacted a million people by uh, 2026. That's basically what we're doing. So we're at 16,000 now. If we keep growing 80% per year, we'll have reached a, a million people. That's what data can do, right? Look at that. There are the figures right there off the tongue as well. I didn't prep him for that. For anyone listening, I didn't I didn't say, you know, we're definitely going to ask this and all the stats. That, that's what you get when you when you know you you know your stuff and you've got the data in front of you. So, no, David. My maths, by the way. I hope that's. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's probably sat there with a calculator now, but for me, it was good enough. <laughs> um, yeah, David, absolutely amazing having you on the show. I, I feel that maybe even as we get on, maybe there'll be a series two. I think we've got so much more we can even talk about. Um, I'd love to have you back on. Um, and yeah, thank you very much again, mate. I hope you've I hope you've enjoyed it too. Yeah, no, awesome. And then just for all the listeners, like if I could just say one thing and just repeat it is that um, you don't need to be best in class. You just need to be, you don't need to be best in the per and perfect. You really don't need to be perfect. You just need to be like 1% better than the competition, one or 2%. And usually focus, focusing usually helps you with that, uh, with that one or 2%. And uh, yeah, Will, thanks a lot. It's, it's been a blast. Amazing, mate. And that, that insight there, and we'll make sure we uh, post that maybe with the title and be that 1% better. So no, thank you very much again, David. Thank you everyone who's, who's listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please comment, leave some, leave some notes and, and get in touch with, with David and Growth Drive if you, if you need anything. Cheers guys.